Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be here and to tell you something about our work uh, in Manchester, uh, looking at mummies from really a very different uh, perspective. Now, Egypt, uh, as many of you, I'm sure, know, is the gift of the Nile, in the words of the ancient Greek writer Herodotus. It's a country, as you can see, which is largely desert, with this green strip in the centre. And this is created not by rainfall, but by the annual inundation or flooding of the river. Uh, this occurred in its natural way until about 100 years ago, when they began to build dams along the river, which now hold the water back to allow it through as and when necessary. But always the Egyptians have been aware that the land, the cultivatable land, is very scarce and very precious. So they could not sacrifice it for the burial of the dead. They needed it uh, for growing their crops, uh, for living on, and for rearing their animals. Now, once you take the dead out into the desert and you bury them with the artifacts in the tombs, uh, these are ideal environmental conditions for preserving human remains and virtually everything else. So they are the ideal conditions uh, for which uh, the ancient civilization uh, could be preserved. Now, because we have this wealth of evidence, we've got archaeological evidence, we've got art evidence, and we've got one of the great ancient world literatures from Egypt. And you would think there would be a, a huge amount of information in those sources about disease and indeed about the medical treatment. But the evidence in these sources is often limited or skewed or flawed in some way. Uh, for example, the art in the tombs, uh, this is what we call religious art, uh, this shows people, the upper classes, in a perfect idealized way because this is how they wanted to be in the next world. So if you showed them as being in their young 20s, beautiful, with no physical defects, that's how you would be for eternity. It was only amongst the servant classes that occasionally they showed physical uh, problems. If you look at the top image here, uh, there are the ladies at a banquet, the upper classes, looking young and slender and beautiful, uh, the harpist who is there to serve them uh, is shown as an elderly man, he's uh, balding, he's overweight and he's blind. His eye is closed and playing the harp was a profession uh, kept for uh, blind people so that they would have a means of livelihood. So if you look at the art evidence, I'm afraid you get a very uh, idealised and very skewed version of, of what life was like. The archaeology, again, we have um, limited uh, information. In the bottom photograph, you can see a building called the Sanatorium uh, at the Temple of Hathor at Denderah. And this was the place where uh, people went to be treated for mental illness. They would be bathed in these cells that you can see. Uh, they would be put into a trance state called the therapeutic dream, and they would be treated for their ailments. Uh, we gather by means of inscriptional evidence that this was often very successful. 
Now, we know that there were other very much earlier uh, examples of sanatoria attached to temples. Uh, they go back about a thousand years before uh, the examples you get in Greece. But this is the only one that has been actually archaeologically excavated and identified as such. So again, limited evidence. The third group of evidence, uh, the literature, we have 12 medical papyri, uh, which are a very important resource, as you'll see later, for information about the symptoms and the treatments uh, of many of the diseases the Egyptians had. But 12 examples from 3,000 years of history. So again, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. There may well be other examples uh, awaiting discovery in, in libraries or museums, or there may be others awaiting archaeological excavation. But it's a very, very limited source as we know it. So we have to turn to the mummified remains uh, for evidence about disease. It's been said that the mummies are a museum of disease because it's preserved there in the skeleton and indeed in the soft tissue. This gives us evidence about the Egyptians' uh, disease patterns, their health, their diet, uh, and their medical treatment in some cases. And this is the work that we focus on in Manchester. So Egypt itself and museum collections around the world have very large numbers of mummies. Uh, people sometimes think, you know, there are several hundred mummies, but there are thousands of them uh, still in the sand in Egypt, but also excavated and kept there now in magazines. So here you can see in this image um, Egypt as it is today with this narrow cultivated strip uh, where they grow their crops, and if you fly to Egypt, and you fly over the Nile, uh, you can see uh, the green area and then the desert beyond. And you can literally stand with one foot in the cultivation and one in the desert. Here again, in the foreground, there is a modern cemetery, so they're still doing the same thing, taking the dead out and burying them on the edge of the desert. Now, in antiquity, they were buried, first of all, going back uh, to about 5,000 BC, 7,000 years ago, they were buried in the desert in shallow graves. And these uh, conditions, these shallow graves, meant that they were packed around with sand and they became naturally uh, dehydrated and preserved. And these are what we call natural mummies. Now, around 3,400 BC, you can see that they moved uh, from the shallow grave here where the body is shown surrounded by some pottery and artifacts for use in the next world. For the elite members of society, in around 3,400 BC, they began to build what are today called mastaba tombs. Uh, mastaba is the Arabic word meaning a bench or bench-shaped, and you can see that the superstructure of the tomb uh, is indeed bench-shaped. So the body was now placed in a brick-lined chamber underground. But because it was no longer packed with the sand, it decomposed rapidly. By this time, however, they've already developed a belief in the idea of an afterlife. The individual spirit goes on into another world, but needs to come back to the body in the tomb, recognize it, and use it to partake of the food offerings that the family uh, and the priests place at the tomb. So they have to find another way of preserving these bodies. 
And we have a period of several hundred years, probably, of trial and error, where they were trying different methods of intentionally preserving these bodies. And they come up with a technique, um, certainly by around 2800 BC, uh, where they are able to preserve these elite bodies uh, by an intentional means. And we call these uh, true or intentional mummies. Most people, however, that's probably 80% of the population are still buried in these shallow graves and are still natural uh, mummies. Just a couple of examples here. Uh, this one is um, an intentional mummy. It's in the Manchester Museum collection. A child dating to the Greco-Roman period. You can see that the skin tissue is still there. There's gilding on the face, and you can see the eyelashes. So that's a very good example of intentional mummification. On the other side, uh, a body which is um, about 3,000 years earlier. Uh, this is in the British Museum here. It's a natural mummy, a preserved mummy uh, in the sand, uh, but still there with the hair, with the skin tissue, and from our point of view, uh, would be still full of uh, very interesting information. So what is mummification? Well, there are two main stages. First of all, evisceration. Uh, they removed the viscera from the, the chest and the abdomen uh, cavities uh, through an incision in the flank. And you can see that this varies from one historical period to another. They took these out and they left behind the heart because they believed that that was the seat of the emotions and the intellect. That was uh, the seat of the personality. So the heart was left in place. Also the kidneys, and we don't know why they left them behind. There's no known um, uh, religious reason, uh, but they're probably difficult to identify and to locate and to remove. They also practice brain removal uh, from at least as early as 2000 BC. Uh, the brain was not preserved. It was simply thrown away as being uh, an irrelevant part of the person. The second stage is dehydration. Uh, this is the drying of the body tissues uh, and the viscera. And this took place over a period of 40 days. It was very interesting, some years ago I went, I was in Egypt when um, President Sadat had just died and they were waiting for the funeral. And that was 40 days. And I'm sure they didn't know why it was 40 days, but it was the ancient Egyptian period of time, 40 days uh, to prepare uh, for the burial. Now, these uh, organs and the body were treated with something called natron, N-A-T-R-O-N. Natron is a, a natural um, uh, substance that occurs in Egypt in two places, uh, near Alexandria and very much further south. Uh, chemically, it's a mixture, a natural mixture, of uh, baking powder and washing soda, so it dries out the tissues. Once these are dried, uh, the viscera were then either made into packages and put back inside the bodily cavities, or they were put in one big package on the legs uh, of the mummy, or they were put into jars uh, called canopic jars. Uh, there are four of these to a set. You can just see two of them here. So if you can examine the viscera and the body, you can get a great deal of information uh, very often about 
disease processes. So that's a whistle-stop tour of mummification, why they did it and how they did it. Now, in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, people went to Egypt, the wealthy people, on the grand tour. And it was thought very desirable to come back with two souvenirs, a dead crocodile under one arm and a mummy under the other. And they then became part of stately homes. Now, in the um, late 18th, early 19th centuries, there was a fashion for unrolling or unwrapping mummies. And uh, a number of surgeons went around um, Britain unrolling mummies in front of very select audiences. It would be a social highlight. You'd have a supper party and unwrap a mummy. And this is actually an invitation which a colleague of mine uh, has, um, uh, Lord Lonsborough at home, uh, uh, Monday, June 1850 in Piccadilly, a mummy from Thebes to be unrolled at half past two. Now, these were frivolous pursuits and most of the information uh, was lost. So uh, all the evidence from these mummies that would be so valuable to us today is no longer uh, with us. Just occasionally, even these very early unrollings uh, were scientifically carried out. Uh, one of the best uh, was on the, uh, what we call the Leeds mummy. Um, this was the mummy of a man called Natsef Amun, uh, who was a priest in the temple of Amun at Karnak. Um, we were invited um, in the 1990s by the Leeds City Museum, who now own uh, this mummy, to revisit the mummy, as it were, to get all the information we could uh, from, uh, from it with our modern techniques and to compare this with the findings of the 1825 investigation. This is the wonderful body coffin of it here, and we'll hear more about this later. Uh, but there were just occasionally these excellent uh, examples of investigation. However, for the most part, they were frivolous and they were discontinued uh, in the middle of the 19th century. The next step was in the early 20th century in Manchester, when uh, this woman, the lady in the pinafore, Dr. Margaret Murray, uh, she was the first curator of Egyptology at the Manchester Museum. And she brought together a multidisciplinary uh, team to unwrap and to autopsy and to study two of the mummies in the Manchester Museum collection. Uh, these were called uh, the two brothers, and we have added to her uh, results and investigation in our own studies uh, in more recent times. But this was a real watershed in paleopathology. It made it acceptable, scientifically acceptable, uh, to actually work on mummies in this way. So Margaret Murray's work was uh, a real step forward. Now, I started my career at Manchester in 1972, actually in the Manchester Museum, where I looked after the Egyptian collection. It seemed it would be a very good idea to bring together a group of scientists from the university and from elsewhere, and to, as it were, update the Margaret Murray project uh, and to work on the mummies in the Manchester Museum collection. And this team project has gone on now for over 30 years. Um, it's successful, I think, because it's had that continuity. Uh, people who know each other know what they're doing with the mummies, and it's gone on and developed from this. 
We've always had two main aims. The first of all, we wanted to establish a methodology, a means of examining mummies uh, which other people could adopt for their own collections. Uh, this was known as the Manchester Method, and it's now so commonplace you, you don't think that it was never there, because you see it being applied, for example, to Lindo Mann or to any of these um, television films. They always have a multidisciplinary uh, project. But it was started here with the, with the Manchester work. And then we wanted to use the biomedical and scientific um, results that we could get uh, to find out information about disease, and the lifestyle of the ancient Egyptians uh, and about their funerary beliefs uh, and their religious uh, beliefs as well. So these were our aims, and they're still basically what we uh, look for today. Now, five years ago in 2003, uh, the university decided to establish a special centre uh, for uh, the examination of uh, Egyptian mummified remains. And the unusual thing about this is that it was placed in the Faculty of Life Sciences. Most Egyptology departments, well, all other Egyptology departments, uh, are located in the humanities. Uh, but ours is actually in a science faculty, which gives us lots of um, benefits and advantages. And this was opened uh, in December by uh, His Royal Highness, uh, the Earl of Wessex, uh, you can see here, uh, and uh, it got off to, to a good start. Now, the main focus of the centre is to have an interdisciplinary approach. Uh, we combine history with science, uh, and we research disease, medical treatments, uh, and the mummification techniques. And it's the only facility in the world where you can actually study Egyptology from a bioscience perspective. We've developed over the years many diagnostic tools, which I'll talk about in a minute, and our teaching and our research programs uh, are based on these. Just to look at some of the techniques that we use, well, the first one, and in many ways the most obvious one, uh, is radiology, because it's totally non-destructive. Uh, the famous British Egyptologist, William Flinders Petrie, he obtained the first X-ray of a human mummy in 1897. Now, X-rays had just been discovered a few years before that, so he was ahead of the crowd, as it were. But after him, really, the, um, the awareness of what uh, radiological techniques could do for Egyptology uh, was lost. And it was not until the 1960s uh, that there was a revived interest in this technique. At the beginning, back in the 1970s, uh, we uh, used the techniques that were then available, uh, fluoroscopy and tomography, of course, uh, and we had a very good arrangement uh, with the Manchester Royal Infirmary. The professor, Ian Isherwood, uh, was keen on this work, and he arranged for the mummies to go from the Manchester collection at the museum into the Royal Infirmary. They had to go as weekend patients because um, it was thought undesirable. If you went in in the week, you'd see the previous person coming out in this state. So they were x-rayed over the weekends, uh, over a period of uh, two years. 
And um, a, a lot of information was obtained from this, but then in the late 70s, it was possible to add uh, a new technique which had become available for patients, uh, CT scanning. And this, of course, is still used today. It's extremely useful uh, for mummies because you can get so much information, not just about the disease, but about the actual mummification techniques and the artifacts, the jewellery and the masks and so on that are put in uh, between the bandages. Now, I'd just like to mention one case study here, uh, which is of uh, particular interest. In 1975, we decided to unwrap and autopsy one of the mummies in the Manchester collection. Uh, this was the first time that it had been done in Britain since Margaret Murray in 1908. And it aroused a huge amount of press interest. Uh, it went on to the front page of the Times, the cover of Newsweek, and it was the subject uh, in the telegraph of a political cartoon, uh, which showed Harold Wilson and his cabinet colleagues unwrapping a mummy. Uh, the mummy was entitled The Social Contract, and the caption underneath read, I thought I saw it move. So it really made, uh, made the headlines. This is the mummy that was unwrapped, number 1770 in the museum catalogue. And we x-rayed it before unwrapping. Uh, and in the initial x-rays, uh, there was an uh, opacity, a dense, a dense spot uh, in the anterior abdominal wall. As we unwrapped the mummy, it was possible to remove this nodule and then to x-ray it with greater magnification. And the center here, you can see uh, the, the guinea worm, uh, this wiggly uh, uh, creature here, because this is the calcified remains of a male guinea worm. Now, the life cycle of the guinea worm is that the male and the female worms uh, mate within the human host. And uh, the male worm then dies having impregnated the female worm. The pregnant female worm then tries to get out from the human host uh, through uh, the tissue, very often the skin of the legs, and very often ulcers are made as it tries to leave the body. Now, a very interesting feature of this mummy was that the legs had been amputated, uh, one below the knee and one just above the knee, uh, before death. So we wonder whether, in fact, uh, the lower limbs were so badly ulcerated because of the guinea worm infestation uh, that they uh, decided that they would amputate them as a last-ditch attempt to save this uh, young girl's life. So it's an interesting case study. It's the earliest physical evidence of guinea worm infestation, although um, it's known much earlier. It's in the Bible, of course, in the book of Nehemiah, where they talk about a fiery serpent. So radiology has its uses, and of course it's very important in terms of identifying disease in the skeleton and in any of those remaining soft tissues. But because you've got skin tissue with mummies, you can have a whole battery of other techniques. And one of the major and, and really relatively straightforward techniques is histology. 
this, of course, is looking at the uh, tissue uh, under a microscope, a light microscope, or then with electromicroscopy, uh, you can get uh, greater information. <clears throat> the major uh, advances that have been made in this have been how to rehydrate and fix the mummified tissue so that it can be sectioned uh, for examination under the microscope. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that mummified tissue is dehydrated by means of natron. So you have to put back uh, that um, fluid content. Some people use water, some people use alcohol or a combination of both. Or um, some years ago, um, a, a scientist in Birmingham developed a technique using fabric conditioner. And uh, he wrote a learned paper uh, entitled, How to Comfort Your Mummy, uh, because he used comfort fabric conditioner. And this is very effective. So basically, you rehydrate the tissue, and then you um, freeze it and section it and examine it as you would with modern tissue. In order to get to the tissue samples deep inside the body uh, for histology and for other uh, diagnostic tools such as immunocytochemistry or uh, ancient DNA techniques, uh, we have developed uh, the use of the industrial endoscope. The medical endoscope is no good for us because that relies on uh, flexible tissue. Uh, but um, uh, mummies are rigid inside, uh, they're much more like cavity wall insulation. And this is what the industrial endoscopes are used for. So we've been able to develop endoscopy uh, to uh, view inside the mummy, and then with a biopsy attachment on the end, uh, you can take the required tissue samples. So just a few examples uh, from the histology. Um, here is the Leeds mummy again. Um, as we've said, it was actually owned by the Leeds Philosophical Society. It was bought for them uh, by their, one of their members, uh, a man called John Blades. In the work we carried out in Manchester, samples were taken uh, from the scrotal area of the mummy. And when these were rehydrated and examined histologically, uh, they were found to contain the remains of a filarial worm. Now, um, the carrier for this disease is the mosquito. Uh, these worms, and you get this disease in Egypt today, of course, and elsewhere, uh, they can block the lymphatic channels, uh, causing um, a disease called elephantiasis, where you get swelling and thickening of the skin. Uh, these are the feet of the Leeds mummy, and although mummification would have removed that, uh, that water content and the swelling, you can see that the skin here is quite loose on the feet. So I really wonder whether uh, this individual, again, had elephantiasis as well as uh, filariasis. Another study on this mummy, which we're pursuing at the moment, uh, again in the scrotal tissue, um, the histopathologist found plaques of atheroma uh, in the femoral blood vessels uh, from the groin. Now, we always think of uh, furring of the arteries as a modern disease uh, related to our diet. The ancient Egyptians had basically a vegetarian, disease, uh, vegetarian diet. 
uh, they ate uh, the vegetables and the food that they produced, with just very occasional uh, fish and meat. But there is a major difference in the diet of the ordinary people and the priests and their families. Because what happened at the end of the ritual to the gods in the temple every day, they were presented with food, uh, which was basically full of beef, uh, full of meat. And at the end of offering to the god, the food was taken away and given to the priest, divided up amongst the priests who took the food home. A number of mummies uh, have this disease, and uh, they are all priests or in priestly families. So what we're looking at at the moment uh, is um, uh, the link in the diet of these individuals uh, and, uh, and the disease. This man in particular is interesting because from the inscriptions on the coffin, we know that he was the overseer of the sacred cattle uh, in the temple of Amun at Karnak. So he was really in there with the beef dinners. Uh, he would have had beef three times a day, and uh, I think we can see the evidence for this uh, in his uh, physical condition. Another very interesting case study um, is uh, one of the two brothers. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, we went on and we've done further work on these mummies that Margaret Murray originally uh, unwrapped. Uh, in the canopic jars belonging to one of the brothers, um, tissue um, was taken and rehydrated. And it turned out to be lung tissue with some heart tissue adhering to it. Because in the removal process, when the embalmers were taking the lungs out of the uh, mummy, uh, sometimes heart, part of the heart would, would adhere to it. So <clears throat> here you have at the bottom lung tissue, which is 4,000 years old. And if any of you know modern lung tissue, uh, I think you'll see that it's not very different in appearance. This has been rehydrated, of course. And then we have the section here, um, with, which has been selectively stained. And the purple areas on that slide uh, show particles of silica. And this is evidence of a disease called sand pneumoconiosis. And if you lived to be uh, an adolescent in ancient Egypt, uh, because you were breathing in the, the atmosphere, uh, you were very likely to end up with sand pneumoconiosis. Uh, this um, would give rise to coughing, shortness of breath, uh, and uh, generally chronic ill health. There's also evidence of pleurisy in the lung tissue, and in the attached heart tissue, there's evidence of pericarditis. So almost certainly here, you've got the combination of uh, conditions that brought about this man's death. I'd have to say that usually we don't find the actual cause of death. Uh, it's really quite rare. Another mummy in the Manchester collection, Asru, uh, the Chantress of Amun. Uh, she would be one of the uh, upper-class ladies who sang to the god in the temple. Now, her organs, uh, her viscera, were placed in a large package on the legs of the mummy. Um, it came to the museum in 1825. <clears throat> it's the first large Egyptian antiquity the museum acquired. And here again, uh, tissue samples were taken, 
And uh, in the lower slide, you can see these semicircular areas. Uh, these are the larval forms uh, of uh, a nematoid worm, uh, Strongyloides. So again, it's a parasitic infestation. And it was possible to use electromicroscopy to identify this organism uh, in Azru's viscera. We also have had, and still continue to have, a major uh, project on dental studies. Now, you can examine uh, the dentitions of the ancient Egyptians either from the unwrapped dry skulls, you've got an example here, or from x-rays of wrapped mummies where you can see the uh, dentitions on the x-rays. The general pattern of disease in ancient Egypt is that there was widespread attrition, wear on the biting surfaces of the teeth, uh, which is very evident in this lower jaw here, which belonged to one of the two brothers. And this was due to the diet, because they ate over 30 different kinds of bread. Uh, samples of bread have been found in the tombs, and they've been looked at microscopically. They're full of grit from the atmosphere, but also we believe they added grit to the grinding process, so you would end up with very gritty sandwiches. Uh, and uh, if you ate the normal, um, uh, very heavily bred diet, uh, by the time you were adolescent, uh, you, ha you would have some uh, degree of attrition. Very little in the way of caries or tooth decay until the later Greco-Roman period. Now, here there are two interesting dental conditions. In the top left-hand uh, image, you can see a geminated tooth, where two teeth have fused and grown down as one. This is in the upper jaw, uh, the two left incisor teeth. And there's actually an extra tooth, an accessory uh, incisor behind, and that is a rare condition. <clears throat> the other head is the maxilla of the mummy we unwrapped, uh, the girl of about 14 who died due to probably uh, guinea worm infestation and then the amputation of the legs. The dentist looked at these teeth and there's very little attrition. Uh, and he maintained that she had been on a, a liquid or invalid diet uh, for most of her life. <clears throat> the Leeds mummy, again, is an unusual example because when he died, the tongue was so swollen they couldn't close the mouth. So he was mummified and buried with his tongue protruding. We looked at possible reasons for this. One, of course, would be disease of the tongue, but no evidence could be found for that. Strangulation, well, there's no evidence of strangulation by means of ligature. He may have been manually strangled, uh, which wouldn't show up in the evidence now. But the most uh, favored uh, explanation is that this was a severe reaction to an insect bite. Uh, his tongue became swollen. He literally choked to death on his tongue. Now, very sad for him, but for us, there was a bit of a gold, a silver lining because it meant we were able to go inside the mouth uh, and to make a complete study of the dentition. Uh, so we have as much evidence about his dentition as about a modern patient. And he has a very interesting pattern of wear that you can see on the bottom, 
where on the biting surfaces of the teeth, but also between the teeth as well. And the dentists believe that this again is due to the diet, um, uh, acidic fruit and fruit drinks, and probably over-enthusiastic uh, flossing uh, with a twig toothbrush and the toothpaste they use, which was Natron. Uh, and there is this really very odd pattern of, of wear. Now, until the <clears throat> 1990s, we had concentrated uh, specifically on uh, multidisciplinary studies of individual mummies. But in the 1990s, we were approached by the Schistosomiasis Research Project uh, to see if we would be willing to look at the evidence for this disease uh, in Egypt in antiquity so we could provide a historical context uh, for the work that was going on today and the ancient and the modern data could be compared. The Schistosomiasis Research Project was set up about 15 years ago um, in, in Egypt uh, with input from the United States of America. And uh, schistosomiasis is a parasitic disease. Um, it afflicts uh, between 200 and 300 million people around the world in 79 countries. So after smallpox uh, and uh, malaria, it's one of the great problems uh, for the World Health Organization. Egypt had as high as 80% incidence in the villages. So they were very keen to do something about this. And this project was set up to try to find ways of preventing it, uh, diagnosing it in the first place, and treating it. And it has been, uh, I understand, very successful. In the top slide, you can see a mummy in the Manchester collection, which we knew from the x-rays many years before, uh, had a secondary um, uh, situation, which is uh, the result of this disease, calcification of the bladder. So we knew that this mummy was positive for uh, schistosomiasis, and I'll explain why that's important in a minute. Some years ago, I was invited out to Egypt as the guest of their Ministry of Health uh, to go to see um, the, uh, the disease in the current uh, environment. And here we are in um, uh, a clinic in the Delta. These children all have the disease, although they look quite happy. Um, and the problem, of course, is that they go into the canals uh, and they are um, infected. It can be cured, but then, of course, they uh, become reinfected. So just a few words about it. As we've said, it's this chronic debilitating disease uh, affecting many people in countries around the world. It's basically the body's reaction to the parasite, the schistosome, uh, that is inside the human host. The schistosome needs two hosts in order to complete its life cycle, the human and uh, a water snail uh, that lives in water of a particular temperature. So this is why it occurs in particular countries around the world. Because it's debilitating, it has a great impact on um, the agricultural workforces of these countries. And in fact, it's made worse in modern times because they have these dam building programs and also irrigation schemes. So you get increased snail populations and increased uh, disease. So um, the original um, number afflicted in Egypt have now been reduced, and this is 
very good uh, news. But what happened in ancient Egypt? Did they actually recognize this disease and did they record it? Now, here we have uh, a sheet of one of the medical papyri. Um, as we said, there were 12 of these, um, and uh, they're in various countries around the world. There are some in Britain, uh, some in Berlin, uh, some in America in particular. In these papyri, there's something called the RRR disease that is mentioned uh, 50 times. And one of the symptoms mentioned in the RRR disease is uh, hematuria, blood in the urine. And this is a classic symptom of uh, one form of, bil uh, of schistosomiasis called bilharzia uh, that existed uh, in ancient Egypt and in modern Egypt. People, however, are unwilling to uh, conclude on this. Some scholars uh, think that the Egyptians identified a parasitic disease, but not specifically schistosomiasis, because they say that the schistosome was probably uh, not visible to the naked eye. It was eventually identified by Theodor Bilharz in Cairo uh, in the 19th century with a microscope. So it's very, very small. And they also say autopsies in ancient Egypt would almost certainly not have been carried out quickly enough to discover the parasite. So we don't know if they actually uh, identified the disease as such. But certainly all the conditions were there uh, in antiquity as today uh, to ensure that it would have uh, existed. Even if you were wealthy and you had a beautiful villa uh, with a swimming pool in the garden, as we can see in the bottom uh, photograph here. Uh, these pools were uh, filled by these infected canals. And so if you went and paddled or swam uh, in this uh, pond, uh, you, would, uh, you would get the disease. Schistosomiasis has also been certainly identified in uh, mummies. Um, just a couple of cases here. Professor Ruffer, Armand Ruffer, he observed these calcified um, parasite in kidneys in two mummies right back in 1910. And more recent um, radiological and histolo histological and immunological techniques have again uh, revealed these positive results. And these are just some of the uh, publications uh, that, that result from this. Now, the techniques that we can use, of course, um, radiology, uh, but there are problems because if you x-ray uh, mummies, you need access to expensive hospital equipment, uh, and of course, it's only applicable for full body mummies, uh, not for small tissue samples. So if you want to do a statistical survey, uh, it's, it's really not a viable option. Histology, again, has its restrictions because you've actually got to hit upon that one bit of tissue with either a parasite or an egg in it. It's like looking for cats in coal holes, basically. You're very lucky if you happen upon it. So we decided with the Manchester Project that we had to find another method. So we did two things. First of all, in order to get enough samples to make this statistically viable, uh, we established the International Ancient Egyptian Mummy Tissue Bank. 
We wrote to um, over 8,000 institutions around the world uh, and asked them if they had mummies, and if so, would they be willing to uh, provide us with small tissue samples for the bank? So this became a major resource for our work. We have about 2,000 uh, samples of tissue now in the bank. But it is a bank, so if people elsewhere uh, want to research uh, uh, diseases, they can apply to us for uh, tissue samples. The second thing we wanted to do was to develop a technique, a diagnostic tool that could be relatively cheaply used on large numbers of samples. And this was the work of Dr. Patricia Rutherford because she developed uh, immunocytochemistry uh, for the first time to be applied uh, to mummified uh, remains. Basically, what this does is to detect the antigen, if it's present, uh, in the mummy. So if in life that person suffered from this disease, uh, it will still be present uh, in the uh, tissue. She worked first of all on um, the mansoni and hematobium uh, antigens in modern mouse tissue. And if it's present, the disease, you will get this green fluorescence. So the example at the top there is the modern mouse tissue. She then moved on to a 50-year-old body, a, a cadaver of an Egyptian uh, sailor that was in the Manchester Medical School. And in the center there, you can see the egg burden of this disease, again, fluorescing green, uh, showing that he had um, uh, the disease 50 years ago. She then moved on to tissue that was thousands of years old from the mummies. And we went back to that test case mummy where we had uh, identified uh, that it was positive for schisto uh, by the, um, the radiology showing calcification of the bladder. We biopsied tissue from the same location in the mummy and uh, then uh, this was looked at by this uh, new application of immunocytochemistry. And in the bottom there, we were incredibly lucky because we actually found uh, the schistosome itself, the worm. And that's been identified by the uh, Theodore Bilharts Institute in Cairo uh, as a male hematobium worm. It's 2,000 years old, uh, and uh, it's still there looking exactly as it, it did uh, and as its uh, modern counterparts. Now, the importance of this technique is that you can apply it uh, to diagnose other diseases. You can adapt it for that. Um, we also use it as a preliminary survey before we go on uh, to look at it uh, with DNA identification. Ancient DNA techniques are fantastic, but they have quite a lot of problems. They're also very expensive. So it's only if it's positive for immuno uh, that we would think about using the DNA techniques. But it was possible with that schistosome to get the ancient DNA of that, of that uh, worm, not of the human host, but actually of the worm. And that's the first time that this has uh, been done. Now, the problems with uh, DNA are, of course, um, contamination of the sample uh, by anything in its history, anything in the history of the, uh, the mummy, uh, and also um, the 
length of the strands of DNA that can be uh, obtained. To some extent, this has been addressed with this key technical advance, which is called PCR, but there are still problems. The current status is that you can um, get DNA out of some mummies to identify gender, male or female. Sometimes you can identify family groups. And uh, as we've seen with this one case in Manchester, you can identify parasite DNA and then see, in fact, how the parasite has evolved and developed uh, over the uh, millennia. Future possibilities, if enough of it was done, would be to look at migration patterns uh, in ancient populations and also something which has been searched for but not yet found, uh, bacterial and viral DNA in ancient samples because the diseases caused by viruses and bacteria escape us at the moment. Uh, so um, these would be a whole new area of diseases that could be identified. Now, having looked at disease, we realize that the ancient Egyptians uh, really must have something going for them in terms of medical treatments. If you had schistosomiasis and it was untreated, you would be extremely debilitated. Um, would you be able to build the pyramids, the tombs, the temples? They had a vibrant civilization. So what was going on? Well, we decided uh, to look at the, um, the pharmacy uh, that they had, the pharmaceutical treatments. And we were lucky enough um, to have a grant from the Leverhulme Trust, as indeed they funded the work on the schistosomiasis. But we still have a current grant from them uh, on the pharmacy project. So we developed the Manchester methodology, which combines history and science, uh, to look now at um, ancient Egyptian pharmacy. And it's an innovative uh, approach uh, because we've gone back and looked at the prescriptions in those medical papyri. They've been translated over the last 100 years. But really, this work is showing that these, uh, these translations should, in many cases, be revised. Uh, because um, far from being magical spells, as has been thought for many years, uh, it's been found that they are in many cases accurate for the treatment of those diseases and therapeutically viable. Uh, something like 70% of the um, pharmaceutical treatments used in ancient Egypt uh, were being used down until the 1950s uh, in, uh, in the modern uh, world. So the project um, works backwards, if you like. Instead of starting from the medical papyri, we look at the ancient and modern plants that would have lived and been sustainable uh, in, in Egypt in antiquity. We're also using the ancient tissue bank to see whether we could find traces uh, of those uh, treatments in the tissue. In St. Catharines, in Sinai, there is um, an area uh, where they are growing uh, plants today, medicinal plants, uh, on the basis of Bedouin knowledge. Um, and uh, we have linked up with them as a partnership, and we're trying to see if the ancient Egyptian remedies have gone through into Bedouin um, um, techniques uh, and through then into the modern day. So here you can see 
uh, the area in Sinai, there's several areas actually where they're growing these in uh, microclimates, and these are some of our um, students and colleagues out uh, with, the, uh, with the people there. So basically, the pharmacy project, well, we've got molecular studies. Uh, we're looking to see if DNA techniques can be used to uh, investigate these plant-based uh, therapies and to compare uh, ancient plants and modern strains, how strong were the ancient strains compared with the modern. We're also looking at um, the, um, the geographical sources of the medicinal ingredients. Some came from within Egypt. The agricultural uh, and farming background provided some of these, but some were definitely imported from the Near East, from Libya, uh, Nubia and the southern Mediterranean. So again, we're using samples in the tombs, especially resins, uh, to see where these came from, uh, from outside Egypt. Very importantly, I think the interim results uh, are to show that uh, ancient Egyptian pharmacy uh, was valid, it was reproducible, uh, it was far from magic. Some remedies were, but basically uh, it was a rational means of treatment. And as we've said, a high proportion uh, was actually uh, in use in ancient Egypt, was in use until the modern uh, times. Our current project is um, uh, on this mummy here. It's um, a mummy, the name is Lady Takabuti, and she's uh, in the Ulster Museum in Belfast. The Belfast Museum is being redisplayed, and Takabuti will go back on as the key feature of this new gallery. Um, it was acquired in 1834 by Belfast uh, and unwrapped then, and then partly rewrapped in the way you see here. So they approached us to see if we would uh, undertake with them uh, a study on this mummy. And uh, that is what we're in the process of doing. Um, it's going to be the subject of a major uh, BBC documentary, a 60-minute documentary uh, next year. And next week, I'm going out to Egypt uh, to film with them uh, the background of where this mummy came from uh, and the temple where her father worked as a priest. So this is the current project, uh, which is um, continuing at the moment. So the significance of the kind of work that we do. Well, it's important uh, in Egyptology because it gives you the truth. You don't have the skewed version of the art. You don't have the limited archaeological uh, or literary evidence. We have the evidence from the bodies themselves. In Egypt, you've got a continuous history of the population over some 7,000 years. People sometimes say to me, where are the ancient Egyptians? Well, the answer is they're still there. They haven't gone anywhere. The people who are there are the descendants of the ancient uh, people. So you can actually look at the study of disease over some 7,000 years from ancient to modern times. And that's something really that you cannot do uh, anywhere else to the same degree. Because in Egypt, you don't just have uh, skeletons. You've got uh, the preserved tissue as well. Uh, you've got the 
span, the social span, the intentional mummies of the upper classes and the natural mummies of the uh, ordinary people. And we've also got uh, the ancient plant remains and the modern parallels uh, to study in terms of their pharmacy. Also, of course, although limited, these very important uh, medical papyri. So not just in terms of Egyptology, but in terms of the history of disease uh, and the history of uh, treatment, uh, really Egypt provides this unparalleled uh, opportunity uh, to study the evolution of diseases and the evolution of treatment. Uh, and uh, I think the next 20 years probably will throw up more and more of these very interesting ancient and modern uh, parallels and continuums that we can study. Thank you very much. Yes. The question is, in terms of continuity, uh, can we tell what is the uh, influence of the Arab population in Egypt? The answer basically is very little. Um, the Arab invasion occurred in the 7th century uh, AD, and it was essentially a change of rulers rather than population. If you go to Egypt today, um, you'll look at the Egyptians and they're the same as the people on the wall scenes. Um, they've done various modern uh, DNA studies and those people in the villages, I mean, really, they've never left, they've never gone anywhere. So it would have been a very um, um, small overlay as with the Turks later. So these foreigners coming in were really minimal and the, the basic population is as it's always been. Um, it's, it's ancient Egyptian. Yeah. Yes. Intellectual mummies, have you ever had a chance to examine the contents of their stomach? Uh, the natural mummies, any chance to um, look at the uh, contents of the stomachs? Um, no, we haven't. Uh, in fact, the natural mummies are quite few on the ground outside of Egypt because what happened was that museums wanted to bring back, or individuals, to bring back uh, the glamorous-looking uh, intentional mummies. And most of the natural mummies, although they're extremely interesting, uh, were, were left in, um, in Egypt. Um, there has been a big study on um, the workmen and their families who are natural mummies uh, at the Giza Pyramids, but these are skeletal, so there's no evidence of the remains of their, of their stomach contents. But, I mean, ultimately, it would be a very interesting possibility. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, have we replicated the pharmacy treatments? Yes, um, and we actually have the um, the measurements, so you can replicate them, uh, and uh, uh, you know they would be viable today. And some of the you, the problem is with the translations of the papyri, because when you translate from Egyptian, you you get a word in one text, and then you verify it in others. Now, with the papyri, many of the words are just one-off occasions, uh, and so you don't know if you've got the right word. And in looking back over these much earlier translations, they very often reflect, you know, the Victorian translator or the 1930s translator or, or whoever. Um, and so that is the problem from the evidence of the um, papyri. And what we've done is to work backwards and say, would this have worked? for that disease or these set of symptoms. And some of the translations, they wouldn't. Those ingredients would not have worked for that. So we, we know it has to be something else. Um, you also get um, curious things such as something called rat's tail, which you assume is rat's tail. But in fact, from another um, inscriptional um, source, uh, it, it is a vegetable. So it's like ladies' fingers. So you've always got those other levels of problems with the translations. But I think, you know, what we're doing is to work it from the other end. Is, is, it's bringing up all sorts of new possibilities for the translations. But yes, you can, you can reproduce them. Yes, um, we're just setting up a project with the Smithsonian Institute because uh, they, they don't work on Egyptian material, but they've done a lot of work on um, classical um, uh, remedies. And so there will be comparisons eventually and with, uh, for example, early Mesopotamian medicine. The Greek medicine is later than the Egyptian, uh, but the Mesopotamian probably is, is parallel at the beginning. Uh, some of the Egyptian diseases are called, uh, treatments are called um, the Asiatic treatment, or so they've obviously imported some as well. And I imagine what happened was that doctors went around from one country to another um, uh, and um, treated patients, so there would have been quite wide-ranging uh, interaction between the medics. Um, Egypt doesn't have a herbal, whereas the Greek does, Dioscorides. Um, but a lot of Dioscorides must be extrapolated from what happened in Egypt before. So there is a lot of work to be done on it, but it's it's very interesting beginning to it, I think. Yes, um, the Greek um, physicians in the in the uh, Ptolemaic period went to Egypt to Alexandria uh, to um, to practice dissection. It was forbidden in their own countries. In Egypt, it was acceptable mentally because they had open bodies for mummification for thousands of years, and so they went to study in Alexandria. And if we're to believe the um, the ancient writers, uh, they not only had 
dead bodies, but they were given by one of the Ptolemaic rulers access to um, living prisoners. So yes, they did, yeah. Yes, um, there are collections um, we've had access to in the British Museum, uh, Kew, um, Liverpool, and the Cairo um, Museum collections. Um, these came from um, tombs and uh, gardens of houses. Uh, the real problem is that when these sites were excavated 100 years ago, most people weren't interested in plants, so they threw them away. But some were, and Petrie again, wonderful Flinters Petrie, um, plant remains came back uh, to Britain. And there's a very big um, collection in the Cairo Museum and in the um, Botany Museum in Cairo, uh, in Cairo. So we've had access to those uh, plants. Yes, and again, they've certainly turned up plants in some of the histology, um, pomegranate seed in one case, and you know various things have come to come to light from the um, from the studies on the human remains. The bandaging is superb. Um, if you talk to modern textile experts, they'll say that they, they cannot today produce um, the same quality of, of textile. It's so fine I and mean, it's transparent. If you hold it up, you can see through. The mummies that we've looked at, um, they seem to have about 14 layers of bandaging and at least three different categories of bandage. So there were the ones produced specifically for uh, the, the burial, the mummification. But there were also what we would call household uh, reject linens, such as almost like tea cloths and old sheets. And they, those were the inner packing. And they obviously had a standby stock of old textiles uh, to put into the inside of the mummy. But they are superb. And sometimes you can date mummies because they have the year date of the king's reign in which the bandage was produced. Um, so they, they can have interest historically as well. Yeah. Um, I was very interested in what you were saying about the treatment for mental illness. Mm. Can you direct one to some um, detailed sort of analysis of that? Yes, there are unfortunately only um, a couple of articles in journals. Um, one goes back to the um, archaeological discovery of that site. Uh, which is in the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology. Um, there <clears throat> is also another article which um, deals with a series of prayers <coughs> excuse me, by uh, the, the workforce of the king who lived at a place called Deral Medina. And they um, believed that they were afflicted because of blasphemy by illness, and then they're cured by the god, and they're thanking the god. And they mention something which is um, darkness by day. Now, scholars have argued as to whether this is physical blindness or whether it's the dark night of the soul and that they were psychologically afflicted. There's never been a proper study of 
psychiatric treatment really in ancient Egypt, which would be extremely interesting, I think. Um, I mean, these sites were excavated and there's some inscriptional evidence, but it's never been fully explored. And yet it was so much earlier there than anywhere else. Again, the Greeks took it on into Kos and Epidavros, the, the sites where they had these temple incubation centers. Um, but it goes back <clears throat> 1,500 years before that in, in Egypt. It is possible to do it. Um, there are problems. Um, contamination, which is contamination in the lab, the people handling the tissue. When you take the tissue samples, you need to use endoscopy. So you're getting samples from deep inside the mummy that are sterile and not from the surface of the mummy. <clears throat> there are also problems, as I said, with the strands, getting long enough strands. But it is possible to do it. Um, and it's been done now um, in quite a number of um, studies. I mean, we, we looked at uh, tissue samples from a family of six mummies in Egypt some years ago, and it was possible to get DNA out of four and to show that three were related. When they started to do DNA, um, the re success result was two out of 200, so it certainly has improved. But you still have a lot of problems uh, a lot of um, cases it doesn't work. And I think you really have to have a question that you're asking. Um, you know, it's no good just doing it, it's thousands of pounds to do, just to say, well, we've got DNA out of this moment, it shows it's a man. Well, you know that from the inscriptions and from the mummy. You need a, a proper historical question. And we've done it with the two brothers because the inscriptional evidence uh, and the physical evidence um, indicates that they are not full brothers. We don't know if they're half-brothers or if they were one was adopted into the family. And we had DNA done on tissue samples um, and two different results came out. So the only way there you could be sure would be to actually get the inside of a tooth and to get the DNA from, from that. That would be your long shot, as it were. Um, and, I mean, we haven't done that yet. Um, so you need, you need a question. You need to know what you're asking, I think. Uh, the royal mummies, of course, it, it's a problem because the tissue samples they, they get are from the surface and they're contaminated. So, again, they have to go to teeth um, to get DNA from inside the, the tooth. I think this one. Yes. We do indeed. We've worked closely with them from the beginning, and the first ancient reconstruction they did was the uh, were the two brothers. They did the heads of the two brothers, and then the face of the mummy. We unwrapped the head of the the girl. 
Um, it, the department no, no longer exists now, but um, a person who did a lot of the work, Caroline Wilkinson, has moved to Dundee. So we st she teaches on our course and supervises some of our students. So it's continuing, but, but elsewhere. Uh, and she does both the ancient and, of course, the modern forensic. Um, again, it's a very controversial um, subject. Some people think that you can't get a true scientific likeness from the facial reconstructions, but I've seen evidence <coughs> where they've reconstructed um, uh, from cadavers and they haven't seen the photograph of how the person went alive and they've reconstructed and then eventually compared and they are really very, very... Um, there are details that are open to question, but it does give you a very good idea, I think, of how the person looked. Um. Well, if you could join me in thanking Professor David one more time. Thank you very much. Thanks.